My new one of my New Testament professors, O.C. Edwards, uh, said that when you get ordained to the priesthood and you celebrate the Eucharist, uh, that it'll never be the same twice. And I thought he was nuts. And he's turned out to be 100% correct, but I would expand that and say it's true with being in the liturgy because I have things come to me all the time that don't have anything to do with what I've written a sermon about, which I'm going to preach. But there are a couple of things I just want to do, file by title. The first one is it's coming to me that in the present culture we find, in which we find ourselves, uh, we have to do some work on the meaning of words. And we have to do some work on how the meaning of words changes over time. So I, I don't mean this in terms of being uh, some sort of an elitist, but it may be necessary. In fact, I was actually taught this when I was in graduate school, not just uh, seminary, but when I was in graduate business school, that it's better sometimes to have a dictionary with you as you read. Those were the days when you couldn't do this on the internet, right? So you had to use a book in order to, to do this. Why is this on my mind? Because Father Emerson sang the collect for today, which is the prayer at the beginning of the Mass. comes from a Latin word collecta, to collect the thoughts of the assembly now and to focus us. And it's praying that God will always precede and follow us. In the former prayer book, a long time ago now, it said, we pray that God may always prevent and follow us. So, in 2015, most people understand the word pre prevent to mean to obstruct, to stop. But in the 16th century, when that colic was translated from Latin into English, from the Sarum, Sarum Missal, Cranmer used the word prevent because prevent meant proceed, precede. In other words, the prayer is that may God be always out in front of us and God follow us, be behind us, be with us, right? And there's a prayer that Father Emerson prays that God may be beneath us to hold us up. So it's a good way to think about how God is present in all of the circumstances of our life. The other thing was, I'm not going to preach on the book, on the reading from Job, but Job has got the blues. This is very important because this is about a man who has been afflicted by God and was righteous. We read from Proverbs like we did. Proverbs is all about, if you do this, this is what will happen. Or, to put it broadly, uh, you, you, uh, whatever bad stuff happens to you is the result of your own actions. And for that matter, any of the good stuff that happens to you is the result of your own actions. Right? And here's a guy who's, uh, there's been a cruel bet made between the adversary, which is what Satan means in the original language, and God. So it raises for us the question of, is God capricious, which is for another time. 
And so what follows from this reading from Job, who feels that he can't see God, he doesn't know where God is, he looks around and he can't see God, and he, he himself wants to hide in the dark so God can't see him. You know? I hope during my tenure here you understand that we're not focused on the idea of the need to hide yourself from God or God's going to hurt you. You know? God unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives you, and he knows you by name. So he knows who Job is, and we'll see that later. So today what I do want to preach about is the reading from the gospel. Uh, Isn't it interesting how every time this time of year, the gospels are all about stewardship, whether it's oblique or not so oblique, right? Do you think there might be any, you know... So this is one of those Gospels that is about stewardship. Uh, Fortunately, in the Episcopal Church, which I like in the main, uh, things are suggested. You know, people like me do better when things are suggested to me and not that I'm not directed to do. You know, there's there's a character flaw that I have. I don't like that. I don't like being told what to do. So it's suggested that the preacher... Uh, preach a bit about stewardship. So I'm going to sort of get into that obliquely and set us up because there'll be more of these Gospels in the next couple of weeks about the importance of stewardship. One of the things that occurred to me, I haven't said this uh, before, um, I believe and always have spoken about the fact that I believe that St. Luke's Church or for that matter any parish church St. Luke's Church, uh, I would suggest, might be your center. But I would equally suggest that it is not your circumference, if you understand what I mean. This is a location where people feel fed somehow, we hope. A place where you can have at least a little time of serenity and quiet a place where you are connected to the tradition with a capital T, a place where you have some understanding that uh, you don't have to park your brains in the narthex before you come in here, that you can use the full force and effect of your intellectual powers on the deep things of Christian faith and belief, and that that's a good thing. In fact, something you, you might do. So it's a center in that sense but it needs to have some uh, influence in what you do out there. The priest I began my ministry with in Tucson, Arizona, used to say, if what we're doing, and boy, did we do a lot of stuff. That church was nosebleed high. And he used to say, if Father Brewer and I can figure out any more high church stuff to do, we're going to do it. So get ready. But he said, if what we're doing here has no application to what we do out there, it is a meaningless exercise. It does not mean anything. It is merely self-congratulatory and elitist. So think about St. Luke's as your center and not your circumference. 
Today the gospel talks to us or, or, or files by title the ways of understanding the nature of the kingdom of God. Uh, do we need to live lives of complete renunciation of all material things to be a faithful Christian? How do we understand what Jesus said to the rich young man, what he should do? And how do we come to grips with whether or not God wants us to be rich? Those are all questions. Now, there's some practicalities I want to introduce at the very beginning. If you and I got, uh, get up this tomorrow morning at 8 p.m., at 8 a.m., or I get up earlier than that, let's say 6, and you uh, decide that you're going to give away all your stuff, you are going to completely now renounce all material possessions, and it turns out that all of the people in this country had the same idea, and we're going to now give up all of our possessions. Okay? The big question we have to ask ourselves is that a number of us are involved in outfits that are making stuff. So who's going to buy the stuff? What? So how do we reconcile the, the, the gospel about the necessity of simplicity of life as opposed to accumulating one thing after another? On our block in Monte Sereno, even with the new people who've built houses there, none of them can get their car in the garage. <laughs> All of us are parked outside. So there is an issue about stuff that I'll get to in, in a minute. The Green Sundays, as I say to you all the time, are about the nature of Christian discipleship, its cost, the ways and the means, and how do we understand being God's people in the world. So most of what we read in the Bible has some application to this. How do we put it in our hands? How then must we live? And one of the ways in which we can understand discipleship is something that I've read to you more than once. It's a way. I am suggesting this as one of the ways, not as the way. One who witnesses to an intentional faith as modeled in the baptismal covenant. One who keeps the Sabbath and commits to attending worship every Sunday. One who honors the tithe is the biblical standard of faithful financial giving to the church. One who uses her or his spiritual gifts in the work of the building up of the church. And one who reaches out to others with the love of Christ. So I think you can take that and make whatever uh, alterations that you believe are consistent with your emotional, spiritual, and mental states. But it's a good idea to think about something in a, in a way that's uh, somewhat intentional. So how do we think about the kingdom of God, the nature of the kingdom of God? Marcus Borg, I don't agree with him all the time. Here's a very good book he's written a couple of years. He just died in 2013 or so, but it's called Conversations with Scripture, the Gospel of Mark. 
And he's talking about this uh, idea, the rich young man, the kingdom of God, we need to do all this. So in this section, uh, this is uh, what he says. These sayings of Jesus, and he has other ones in the gospel about stuff like this. These sayings are also commonly misunderstood when they are coupled with the common notion that the Christian gospel is about how to get to heaven. The issue becomes, can't wealthy people go to heaven? Then the conversation turns to requirements for for salvation beyond death. So for many centuries, that's what we've been thinking and focusing on. How do we get to the kingdom of God? How do we get to the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus isn't interested in that. He's not particularly interested in your post-mortem bliss. What he is interested in is to letting you know that the kingdom of God is here. And in some translations into English from the original language, Greek, it also says something like, the kingdom of God is in you. Right? And I'm not so sure that's an accurate translation, but in one sense that's true, isn't it? What does Father Thomas Keating say? Father Thomas Keating says, we are not God. He quotes a a famous Christian in the 4th century. We are not God, but our true self is God. And we receive that, we believe, in a sacramental church like the Episcopal Church. We receive that divine deposit, if you will, at our baptism. So we have it, whether we make good use of it or not is another issue. But we have that imprint. Remember last week, the very imprint of God, like the minter stamping the coin and making the image on a coin in the ancient world. So you and I all bear that stamp. But one of the ways you might translate it more accurately is to say the kingdom of God is near you. It's here, around us. So elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus is going to talk about looking and seeing the differences. And when we think about it, we may think, how are we in some way instruments uh, of the values of the kingdom of God in the world? What is it that we can do to be transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love? Most of us think about that in heroic terms. And the way in which we do it, uh, most of the time, are through the commonplace activities of our own lives. Not, Not some heroic thing about the values of the kingdom of God, the necessity for some kind of um, heroic action on our part. So the kingdom of God is a place that is right here as we live. But it's also not just a place of reward, but a state of being, where God is present to us in an intense and powerful way that produces joy, serenity, completion, affirmation, and clarity of thinking. We should be organized, in my opinion, to assist people uh, with their worries about making sure they're going to get into the kingdom of heaven, right? 
So you're going to say, well, Father Brewer, you're not. I always talking about the kingdom of heaven is here. And this is what Jesus meant when he spoke about it. Where is my Aunt Nora who died? Where did she go? Well, she went to God's space. She is safe in the everlasting arms of God. And at the general resurrection, which is promised in the Bible, she will, we will see her again in the general resurrection. Will I get to see my dog? All my doggies? I think you will. Some, some people would say, no. I say yes. So if you have a dog who has died and now is in dog heaven, this will be part of the general resurrection. I think that's an important thing. Or your kitty, or whatever it is that you thought was uh, important in that, in that sense, you know. In the Bible, we read often at funerals the gospel from John's gospel, in my father's house are many rooms. In the authorized version, it was translated into, in my father's house are many mansions. Sort of a grander, grander way of describing it. But in the original, it means like, in my father's house are a bunch of bed and breakfasts. Right? It means that when we go to God and we're safe with God, we're in a temporary lodging. In the serenity of, 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 of the presence of God. I've always said, too, you know, that when I die and go to God, here's one of the things I think is going to happen. I will know why everything happened the way it did. Right? And I will go, so that's why, da-da-da-da. You'll get to know. The mystery will be solved. And then the sure confidence that you will return in the general resurrection. Gone but shall return. So that's the, the promise. That's the hope of heaven that we understand as Christian people. But you and I have a responsibility to bring in some way the values of the kingdom of God uh, here. So Jesus is speaking to the rich young man and he said, What is it, uh, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, the early disciples and apostles understood and believed that in hearing Jesus' words and seeing his works, they had now a relationship with him, a person whose words and works were indistinguishable from the words and works of God. If God were walking around on the earth, this is what he would be like. And they believed that this relationship that they had and believed would, be, uh, would last forever, even beyond physical death. And they called that eternal life. That's what they meant by it when they used it in terms of their understanding of this. So Jesus, he said, uh, you must, he recites a kind of loose, off-the-cuff Ten Commandments, you know, part, part of them, Right? And he says, don't defraud. Where did that come from? I think he meant don't covet, but you never know. It's just what occurs to you. 
Do you believe that Jesus ever said the same thing twice? I do. All this biblical scholarship, people getting PhDs for the fact that John's gospel says Jesus said it this way, Matthew's gospel said this, he said it this way, Mark's gospel said he said it this way, they don't agree. We have four gospels in the New Testament, they don't agree. And the early church was fine with that. It was okay. That it didn't need to agree. God knows if you've been coming here any time at all, you know I'll say the same thing more than once all the time. I used to worry about that. I used to think, my God, I've got to say something that is absolutely unique. Not anymore. If you say, oh, we've heard that before. Good. You remember it. I'm happy. So he tells the rich young man when he said, I've done all these things. Jesus said, well, there's one thing that you haven't done. You need to go and sell all you have and follow me. Whenever we read the Gospels, we have three things we need to do in our meditating about the, when we read them or think about them. We need to say, what did Jesus mean when he said this? Live. What did the people who preserved what he said and finally wrote it down understand that it meant? And finally, what do we understand it, what it means and whether it has any utility for us at all? Yes or no, right? That's the question we're always in the conversation with, like Borg here, conversations uh, with scripture, that we have that kind of a conversation. So I think what Jesus was saying to the young man was, you still have too many attachments. A garage full of stuff. And you need to begin to say, what, who's running who? Bishop William Temple, who was the Bishop of London during World War II, was in the, in the bomb shelter during a bombing raid over London. And when he got, went out in the morning out of the air raid shelter, he looked at his big house, the Episcopal, and it was bombed, flat, blown up. And he looked around and he said, thank God I'm free at last. <laughs> right? He didn't have to worry about what it was. The Buddha says... Suffering is what characterizes life. And our goal is to sort of, how do we relieve ourselves of the suffering? And one of the things that he talks about is the necessity for dealing with attachment. You know, it's possible to be detached and still engaged. And learning how to do that is the, is, is the thing that is part of spiritual life growth. It, it, I hope it doesn't surprise you that this outlook is not unique to the Buddha. And that there is a, a huge and deep Christian tradition which talks about things like this that has remained virtually unknown to people because we focused on getting to heaven instead of understanding our connection with God. We are not God, but our true self is God, right? 
that great mystery. A mystery, by the way, does not mean something that is incomprehensible or unknowable. A mystery is something that is infinitely knowable. So some of you, when you come to church and you think about certain things, even fleetingly, that are going on in the liturgy or words that you're hearing, all of a sudden you have some way, some different facet of focusing on the same thing. And now it has now a deeper and fuller meaning for you. Some people have very dramatic occurrences like this. Other people, it's sort of a slow, steady assurance or comprehension that builds in the person. So this young man went down sad to his house because he had many things. Here's something else that Borg said. In the first century historical context, that is not what Jesus' teaching about wealth and the wealthy were about getting to heaven. In his world, the wealthy were part of the ruling elite at the top of the domination system, the wealthiest 1% to 2% of the population who set the system up so that one-half to two-thirds of the production of wealth from the peasant class flowed to them. In that world, if you were wealthy, you were a collaborator with the domination system or at least complicit with them. I, I wonder when I'm reading that to you, is there anything that's, that's coming into your mind about 2015? What percentage of this country owns most of the wealth? Pequeño. So maybe uh, being uh, complicit on the side of people who think this should be spread around a little bit more isn't a, a particularly bad plan. St. Luke's Church has always understood itself to be Anglo-Catholic. Anglo-Catholic does not mean this. The priests who originally started the Catholic revival in the Church of England were people who were out there. They were in the slums. They were advocating on behalf of people on the margins. They understood that we needed to have reconciliation between the races. They understood that we needed in some way to understand we needed to create a society where it was easier for people to be good. And they believed that in the liturgy, it incarnated that in what it is that we do on Sunday with its beauty and its serenity and its value. So we should never lose sight of what that means when we understand that term. Don't feel guilty if your life has turned out well financially. Be grateful. It is something to be thankful for. But do ponder what it might mean to take seriously God's passion for a transformed world, the kingdom of God, as seen in Jesus. The question for those of us who have some wealth then becomes... How do we use the wealth we have been given to further God's passion for a different kind of world? I think it's good for you to be successful. I want to be successful. We need to be successful. But we need to think about how we do things in a different way. We need, by the way, I want to say something about this. The church's preferential option for the poor can be understood by some to mean that we have vested the poor with a moral superiority that we others do not have. 
And that is simply not true. It is simply not true. It is clear in the New Testament and in the teaching of Jesus, it is, not for, the, it is the, for the purpose of insisting that the poor and those on the margins are those who deserve and need our compassion, sympathy, and care. So this week, know that the kingdom of God and its values are next to you, both when you are the recipient of God's generosity from others and when you are willing consciously or unconsciously to extend and make the gracious gesture. Remember Houston Smith, the great expert on the world religions on Bill Moyer's program some years ago. He said, I think in the fourth episode, Houston, how would we understand whether we're making any spiritual progress of any kind in our lives? And he said, in all of the great faith traditions of the world, without exception, there is a perception in the person who is intentional about practicing these that they have noticed in themselves an increase in generosity. This does not mean just giving money, although that is very important. It means that you are now taking other people more seriously than you did before. That you're seeing them as made in the image and likeness of God. That perhaps you will be willing to listen to them if they share with you their practical wisdom. And I understand practical wisdom, or one good definition, as the accumulated response to adversity. How do you cope with the things that are, have happened in your life that were challenging? And how did you get through them and what did they do? So know that God is calling you into right relationship with your possessions and that the material prosperity you benefit from is a function of a combination of talent, the generosity of others, and serendipity. I moved down here in 1993 when the Silicon Valley was flying high in April, as they used to say. This great meritocracy that we're in down here, right? And nobody ever talked about serendipity. That their, that their success and their prosperity came from serendipitous occurrences where maybe we could say you were the right person in the right place at the right time. My senior, one of my senior wardens at Christ Church Sausalito moved to the Hawaiian Islands in 1953 and he worked for the Prudential Insurance Company. And in 1959, Hawaii became a state. And Sten Johnson sold the insurance to the state of Hawaii. Working for the Pru. So guess what they said to him? What are you going to do for us next year? You know, selling insurance to the state of Hawaii is a pretty big deal. And he told me once that he came to realize that this was a serendipitous occurrence. He was the right guy in the right place at the right time. You know? So sometimes it's serendipity or you benefit from the serendipity of others. And that's also important uh, to realize. So give thanks to God for that possibility. 
Time magazine had an article many years ago that said, Does God want you to be rich? And there was somebody that was interviewed from one of those big box churches that said, Your self-worth is not a function of your net worth. So give thanks to God for that. Amen.